When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ho, ho, hello, and welcome to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movies podcast that is not drinking any freaking Merlot. Yeah, we don't swear so much around here. Hello, I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and here we are in January for some reason, not Christmas, because defying all reason, there is a Christmas movie coming to cinemas on January 19th. But it definitely falls in the brief. Uh, in fact, spoiler, it's one of the best Christmas movies in years. Uh, So here we are reconvening for a special New Year episode to talk about the holdovers. But what do I mean by we? Well, I am delighted to be joined by Radio 1 film critic and all-around good guy, Ali Plum. Hello, Ali. How you doing? Hello. Ho, ho. Seems strange to be doing this in January. Uh, It's cold. It's cold. Sure. Cold is Christmassy. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a singular lack of, you know... Decorations, fairy lights, eggnog, know, eggnog, generally mince pies. Yeah, and I mean everything's currently selling Easter stuff. Um, I know. So yeah, look, it's strange. My only answer to why holdovers came out in the US is because it came out in the US in December. Because I don't know, but it's coming out here in the UK in January because they think it will have a better shot at winning a BAFTA. I mean. I, I I think that must be the explanation, right? We should say that. Like, I think you're right. I think that's the explanation. However, December is very much award season on both sides of the pond. And, and really, I mean, look, this film, if you haven't seen it yet, this film basically starts just before Christmas. Uh, a boys boarding school in December 1969 is about to break up for the holidays. And our, I use the word loosely, hero, by Paul Giamatti is is basically lumbered with the, the thankless task of staying behind and looking after the boys who, for one reason or another, can't go home to their families. You know, it's literally set in the three or four days before Christmas in the sort of Twixtmas period. There's no diehard... No. Is it really... Not that we're getting into that. It's a Christmas film. Mm. It's bittersweet, it's dark, it's light, it's Paul Giamatti being incredibly grumpy, grumpy. two-faced, and then very direct. It's it's a horrible, great film, and it's it's an Alexander Payne return to form for me. Right, yes. So this is something I want to talk about, because when is the last time we had an auteur-driven Christmas movie? I mean, Alexander Payne is a proper 
genuine, no disrespect, some disrespect, but no disrespect to most Christmas movie filmmakers because I know that they are doing their best, but sometimes they're doing their best with very limited material. This is a guy who makes whatever he wants to make and has the power to do that. He is a full-on auteur and he's made a Christmas movie. They are not, I think, looking to make money with this film. They're looking to make awards with this film and then make the money later. I think this is a film, whether you guys at the time of listening or not, make your decision whether you want to carry on listening when we really get into it, will return to this movie over and over. This has the potential to become a regular looping Christmas film for a lot of people. It has depth, it has colour, it has warmth, it has detail, it has Alexander Payne written all the way through it. I just I just feel like they're going awardsy. It has to be the awards factor. They believe that voters have a very short memory and they'd rather bank on that than they would bank on December in the UK. Because December in the UK, what did we have? Aquaman 2, was that the big rival they were scared of? Wonka? Wonka, maybe? The Boy and the Heron, were they fearing that? I, I, hey, herons can be vicious, probably. Brutal, brutal. <laughs> ugly, weird, creepy heron in that film. And we also had Next Goal Wins, which doesn't really strike me as a big battler in this department. But whatever the reason, the holdovers has been held over. <laughs> oh. And here we are talking about it. And as you may have worked out from both Helen and my shared tone big fan big fan big fan i i've read a couple of snooty reviews because it's always nice to sort of have a little bit of see what the other side is yeah, yeah. look and, and sometimes you read them and go I, I actually see where you're coming from that is a little bit weak or that is a little bit underdeveloped and whatever i think bar humbug <laughs> truly to that no joke intended I, I think this this film you sort of have to work hard to go against it it operates on so many happy levels Devine Joy Randolph is oh my goodness so exceptional and at the time of uh, the publication of this podcast I don't know whether we'll have any announcements as to whether she's got nominations for the BAFTAs or, or what have you but she is not a revelation she's been great in a lot of things but this really gives her an opportunity to show off as to how good she is. Mm. That one party scene in the middle, I don't know how quickly we want to get into it. She's exceptional and she she's she's brilliant. And we, I'm sure, had no idea who uh, Mr. Sessa was before Dominic. Yes, so this is Dominic Sessa yeah. as Angus, who is the, 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 let's, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say, basically a bunch of kids initially are left behind and quickly that gets whittled down to one for reasons I won't go into. Do we want a house spoilery? We're going to, look, we'll, if we're, we're getting into real last acts, last minute spoilers, we will flag that up. We okay. are going to talk about at least kind of half the film. And also, I feel like this is the kind of film that is not particularly spoilerable. You might be right there. Yeah, you might be right there. You sort of get the premise. Grumpy, stuck at this school, addicted to demeaning children, Paul Giamatti. It's the 70s. He's not having a brilliant life and nor is this poor kid and nor is poor Devine Joy Randolph's uh, Mary. Yeah, she's the cook who's also there um, and she has recently been bereaved. She's lost her son in Vietnam. Oh. And, um, and you know, this this kid was her whole life and it's, it's her heart character is, is, I mean, she's very funny at times, but she's also just heartbreaking. It's oh. just the only word I've got, absolutely heartbreaking. And she sees these two socially incompetent nincompoops sort of battling against each other, butting heads, stubborn in their own unique ways. Both know the most in the world in the way that only a teenager and an irascible 40, 50-something balding 
weird classics teacher can both know everything all at once. Oh God, I love this trio. I actually want to watch the movie again the more I talk about it. Mm -hmm. It just has that, they all feel real, but they all are quite heightened. Yes. They're, They're sort of arch. Can we talk actually, before we get into anything else, and this is me sort of guarding the ship a bit, but can we talk about the 70s-ness of it all? Yeah, so I think it's, it's is it 69 going into 70 or 70 going into 71? I'm worried I've got that wrong. Let me intro. triple check, but, but it certainly is shot in a sort of 70s-ish vibe. December, December 1917. Paul Hunnam is a strict hidebound classics professor at Barton Academy. Barton Academy, it sounds like a... Like, it sounds like the school in Dead Poet Society. It sounds like the kind of place that is going to crush any spark of individuality or creativity that you've ever had in your life and absolutely make you conform to the patriarchy and become part of it. That's what it sounds like. It reminds me a little bit of, I don't know what the school is that um, they send, not Joe, but the other one in Arrest Development to. But that's not what a Barton boy does. And you go, well, a Barton boy? It's so ridiculous oh, well, we've got to live up to the legacy of the school. It's just so absurd. And it's the 70s and it's cold and it's miserable. The thing that really made me smile is when this, you know, out of shape, grumpy man of Paul gives all the kids the advice that he never follows himself. Yes. And there's so many (laughs) jokes along these lines of just how he gives it and has all the sense of superiority and happiness that comes with that, but actually is just a schlub that sips Jim Beam nearly said something else, but he does sip Jim Beam and is a total hypocrite. It's delicious. But the 70s-ness goes down to even the the way it was shot. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're aware of this, but it wasn't shot on film because apparently modern film stock is too good. You would actively have to post, you'd have to go into post and make modern film stock look grainy. So they might as well, and so they did, shoot digitally and then grainify it. So that's what they ended up doing. And it seems to be done with such a lot of love. Even the opening focus features, it is focus features. Yeah, all the logos have the sort of 70s element to it. And, you know, the way the camera zooms in, there's there's loads of lovely moments where you go, oh, someone's really had a lot of fun, I think. The cinematographer is called Eagle Brilled. Did I? Did I? Did I make that up or was it real? That sounds sounds real. E-I-G. I-L space B-R-Y-L-D. Yeah, he is He is Danish. I, I know that I on the Empire podcast have, have occasionally gotten Scandinavian names wrong. I get all names wrong. I feel like there's a, there's a cons- not conspiracy, that's the wrong word. There's a tradition, let's say, in Scandinavia of sort of reversing and swapping some vowels at random. Uh-huh. And I have not figured it out yet. I apologise. In Bruges, Kinky Boots. House of Cards, just what you expected. He knows what he's doing, eh? In Bruges, another Christmas movie. But (laughs) There you go. Technically. But really, there's a lot of fun being had. And I think Alexander Payne hasn't made many movies at all. Mm. And him coming back after a six-year gap? Yeah, so it was 2017 was, was his last one, which was Downsizing. That's the film, if you remember, where Matt Damon gets shrunk to the to the size of, what, an inch or two uh, to save the world's resources. Um, good of him. Well done, Matt Damon, once again, uh, saving the whole world. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, 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 was, it was an interesting concept. I like that he was kind of swinging for these big ideas and he was getting into a lot of big ideas in that film. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't terribly focused. Whereas this one feels so much more disciplined is probably the wrong word because it is kind of a shaggy dog story and there are little sort of 
just little scenes of people hanging out. You know, it's not a film with a massive propulsive plot the whole time. But at the same time, it feels so clear in what it is and what it wants to say and who these people are that, I mean, I was just enthralled every second. I felt like the script was loved. You know, when the writer's mm. going, I'm really enjoying this. I'm going to give this another little look and I've got another little look here and I've got another little look here. And there's two people that put it together. The idea, of course, as you might imagine with this being an Alexander Payne movie, is that it was from Alexander Payne's mind. But I think he'd read a script that didn't get greenlit for a TV yes. show. Yes. And reached out to the writer of that, whose name is David Hemmingson, and then they work together on it. But I think only he, David, gets the credit. That's correct, yeah. And and he is also a, a guy who went to one of these schools. And so he writes from a position of knowledge. He writes from a position of complete understanding of the culture, of the kind of people who were there, of the kind of world that this is. Um, and, and you feel that. It, it feels realistic. I mean, I went to, uh, it was a state school, but it did, when I first joined, have a couple of boarders left. So there were a couple of people whose maybe parents were overseas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and... It's, uh, and, and, you know, even, even just having that there, having the dormitories upstairs and being aware of, like, that was a, a particular feeling. And I had a, a, a tiny taste of that just as a day girl going to the same place. And I feel like this really captured that feeling of being stuck with these people 24-7. And if you are a slightly awkward kid like Angus is here, um, if you are a slightly prick or very prickly person <laughs> like Paul Hunnam, um, the teacher, is here, that's going to be a difficult thing. That's going to be a very difficult place to be. I also love that Alexander Payne came up with the idea after watching a very similar type of movie. I mean, it's very similar when you read out the facts. But of course, it being Alexander Payne, it was a French film from 1935. And talk about butchering pronunciation. Merluse, which is, and I'm going to do the whole Wikipedia synopsis here, a tough teacher is charged with looking after the students left behind at a boarding school during the Christmas holidays, rises to the challenge and becomes a person who can better understand the boys in his care. That is sort of the same thing, but also not, because he's not a tough teacher and he doesn't always fully understand the boys that are in his care. Maybe a little, maybe not. Marcel Pagnol, um, 1935. I just love the idea that that's what Alexander Payne does in between his movies, six-year gaps. They'll just go, oh, I'm just going to watch some 1935, you know, French uh, movie. Yeah, sure, why not? Proper film fan, isn't it? And then it'll suddenly become my long-awaited spiritual successor to Sideways because it's very hard not to say that Mm -hmm. because this is the second time that Giamatti and Payne have worked together. But they're so cinematically, for film fans like ourselves, tied together because of Sideways. film, yeah. Nearly 20 years ago that came out. At the time of release of this, this podcast, it will be essentially 20 years, if you want to fudge it a bit. And uh, it's 10 years since Nebraska. Crazy. Isn't that absolutely crackers? But uh, yeah, it's it's so well observed. You can just feel how much love there is in the script, how much love there is in the 70s-ness, the 70s-ness of it. It, it just has that sense of everyone involved cares. Cares so much. And I think I think also the balance of these characters is is utterly fantastic. So you have Paul Hunnam, the professor who has really never, never grown up. And and like I feel like I know these people. So I went to university at Oxford and then I briefly tried to become a barrister, right? And there was a certain type of person, let's be honest, mostly men, who had gone to public school mm-hmm. and then Oxbridge and then the bar. 
and had been kind of locked away in beautiful buildings their entire lives and never really had to interact with the real world. Institutionalised, but not in the other term. Yes, institutionalised at great expense. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and maybe eventually will get institutionalised in another way. <laughs> maybe. Hopefully not. Hopefully, Hopefully not. not. Hopefully not. Um, and look, no disrespect, but there, but there is an element of you have not left... You have not left school. You have not seen the real world. You have not engaged with what everyone else is experiencing. And I'll teach these young boys the way of the world. The way of the world I don't understand. The way of the world I read about in books that were set 2,000 years ago. (laughs) And so he's he's an an interesting and a closed off and a a very uh, buttoned up and, and miserable figure. And then you've got Angus, this kid who wants to essentially do everything and is utterly frustrated that he's being held back by all of these ridiculous people. Yeah, and his parents, his mum, I should say, may come across like an absolutely evil person. But there's part of me that sees her and goes, she's obviously in her own hell, Mm. kind of, and is doing the best she can with what she's got. Would we, from a 21st century perspective, 2023, 2024 perspective, go, oh, she's evil? I think that's easy to say. She's not. I mean, she's just... Just trying to figure things out. Not being able to pick up the phone so that he could, I don't want to reveal too much, maybe have a reprieve from all this. Oh, it's so bittersweet. Yeah. I will say, by the way, if you're tempted to watch the full trailer for it, try to avoid it. Mm, it does give away a lot. This this movie, whilst we're saying, doesn't have big spoilers. What we're telling you is what I'd be willing to know. Same. Um, and then the trailer wants to give you more of, of the different varieties of flavour in the meal. And I think it would benefit from sort of not knowing too much. I agree with that. I'm Helen O'Hara, film journalist, author and host of Women vs. Hollywood. We're exploring the fall and rise of women in Hollywood from the silent era to the present day and into the future. Each episode, I'm joined by three or more special guests to discuss the challenges that women face in the film industry and look at what we can do to change the picture. We've got actors, directors, producers, writers, academics, film experts, you name it. They're all here to explain what's going on in Hollywood. Search for Women vs. Hollywood now, wherever you're listening to this, and come join us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. 
Download the new Bumble now. Well, I do want to talk about uh, about the third person in the in the trio as well, Mary. That's uh, Devine Joy Randall's character because I think she's the perfect balance to both of them because she has so much more awareness of how the world is so much so she is so keenly aware of her place in the world of her son's place in the world of what she went through to get him this great education he was clearly a a boy who absolutely bought into this barton boy idea because he he had a scholarship of a kind because her mum his mum worked at the school at the school and so he went through and he was a star pupil and he did everything he was supposed to do and he's done everything right and then he's gone off to vietnam like he's supposed to do and he's done everything right and he's died and and just her having to deal with that is is kind of mind-blowing and then to have to deal with these as you say two nincompoops it is it is astonishing it is astonishing and i love that she she has so much dignity and so much self composure and so much wisdom that they absolutely lack but she's not a caricature of the perfect person she also has anger in her and she has shortcomings and she has things that she's scared of and she's running away from as well i just thought what an incredible role and what an incredible performance i feel again she's She's deserving any plaudits that come away, and I'm sure there'll be many. The movie would fall apart without her. Yeah. Uh, the movie, I think, otherwise is so sort of hermetically sealed in its privileged but painful glass cube that unless you had some mention of Vietnam or, I mean, if this was a raceless film, it would be absolutely appalling. It, it needs it needs to at least, oh, you're setting it in the 70s? Okay, so the 70s were not a sort of easy breezy time. So what about the world outside of it? So it kind of manages to, to do both, a little. Yeah. But, you know, Mary Lamb has to do a lot of heavy lifting on that front. I, I just thought the casting all round, we've talked about these three, but there's a general sort of, oh, it's you from that and, ah, oh, you're fantastic and you're brilliant and I don't know you very well, but you are exceptional. Like, take Donovan... It's probably the best known. Mm-hmm. But even then it's, oh yes, take Donovan, rather than, I don't know, Bradley Cooper. Yeah. But that's sort of the Alexander Payne way outside of his Matt Damon's. It is, oh yes, ah, very good. But the lady I love in particular, Carrie Preston is one of the most incredibly charming natural screen presences. You might know her from being in... True Blood. That's for me anyway, it's the, True Blood. The Good Wife good for wife me well. and, and The Good Fight. She's just so like... Oh, you, yes, great, you're great. And uh, the party that her character throws is oh. so observed with the 70s-ness of it all. But she's sort of uh, generous and friendly and can be one sort of person when she's helping at school. And then she could be another person when she's at home. And you can see what a real human looks like in a very natural way rather than having like a sort of doppelganger version of Paul where you go, oh, there's, there's, there's Paul in a leather jacket going on a motorbike and having a great time. There is one moment where he sees another successful person who went to Harvard. Yeah. But that is sort of a more traditional, trying to keep up with him. Trying to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. yeah. But I love... Dr. Jones in this case. Very good. Carrie Preston, I salute you. You're sensational. And I I think it's not quite enough of a role to allow her to get all the credit that a lot of the others will. But yes, you are wonderful. Yeah, absolutely agree. Really good performance. I also find it interesting, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but if you're very sensitive, look away now. Uh, this is a Twixtmas film as well as a Christmas film. So uh-huh. it doesn't it doesn't have that crescendo to Christmas that you get in a lot of these stories. 
it very correctly knows that if the, the Christmas holidays do not end on Christmas Day, that you know, so if if it, given its premise, it it really can't and it really shouldn't climax with Christmas. Christmas comes during the course of the film in its time. And you have its obligations. And you have its obligations met. But then you also have to fill the days afterwards. And for these people, it's not necessarily easy to just sit around on the sofa watching whatever. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of liked that about it. Initially, when I was sort of in the film and we got to the Christmas scenes, I was a bit like, oh, I this is this is shorter than I would have thought. And then, of course, I realised, oh, no, Helen, don't be ridiculous. That's fun. I like that. No, I, I just, I really felt the dread. I felt the two-week... Oh no, this clock, this horrible clock, this cold, dank, these achingly old and self-important boarding schools with no one in them. Oi, oi, oi. There's a bit where they remove the tree because they go, well, no kids are here. So we just get rid of the tree and you go, that says it all. They're not going to even leave you bleak. the tree. It's just bleak, but it's bleak privilege and that's sort of such a fun little playground for Alexander Payne to play with and say different things about the world. It's also very New England. And mm-hmm. I suppose it helps when you're trying to set anything in the 70s. I imagine New England kind of helps because they don't really want to progress too much. And I don't know how they went about finding this school where they shot it in, but it can't have been that difficult. Mm. It, it can't look like it's aged since the 1970s. Yep, got that. Got that, no problem. How about the 1870s? We've also got that. That's also available. Yeah, no problem. Can we stick Barton up on a side? Okay. Yeah. That's all we need. I, th- I do feel like that makes sense though, because like you don't, you do want that sense of hidebounness. You do want that sense of, like you say, blue blood kind of privilege. So the kind of Boston Brahmin class yeah. kind of idea. And that's that's why I think Boston rather than even New York makes sense. You know, it just... It has that air of being even more traditional to our, you know, we should say British Irish eyes. Like this is, we're not speaking from a position of knowledge. If you're, if you're currently listening to us in New England and going, hey, that's Massachusetts, man. We're perfectly nice up here in Maine. (laughs) And I apologize very much. Um, Maine is lovely. I have been. It's very nice. It's Um, it's beautiful. I I, I mean, I'm just being a little bit disparaging because it seems to be slightly fun. (laughs) But uh, you feel like you're part of the club. And I think maybe it's because you, it begins at least with all these boys and there's, the, you know, the long hair and the rolling of the cigarettes, the obsession with cigarettes, the poor, is it Korean kid? I think so, yeah. Who is, who, who is just struggling so hard. There's a scene of the other boy who loses his mitten. Oh, fuck, there's just so many opportunities to see the way cinema can into the soul of someone going, that is his life. He is now mittenless. And and seeing kids that young sent off to boarding school as well. I mean, some of the, you know, obviously Angus is is a bit older, but some of these kids are just, you're like, you're too young to be away from home. What are you, go home. It's Go home. It's it's another world and another time. Yeah. And I think Dominic, don't you hope that he'll just get that other role? Because this is sort of like the beginning. It's Mm -hmm. not like a star making performance, but I hope it's sort of a casting director's dream oh, wow, yeah, no, we need to find a reason to use him again because he is in so much of this movie and can trade blows with Paul Giamatti. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's there's a bit where he's got, oh, it's a stunt, but he's he's got to do active nonsense as well and happy, sad, manic. There's a tiny bit of romance. It's, I don't know, it just really is the whole cocktail, this one. 
Mm. And dare I say, it, it's one I look forward to watching in particular with my parents. Oh, I think it is aiming at an older... Okay. Is that I fair? That. I think I think that's that's it, fair. There's there's nothing that would make me cringe, I think, watching it with my parents. I mean, there's a couple... Of, obviously, the boys earlier on are all, you know, arguing over who stole whose porn. But I feel like that's not, you know, not too... And upsetting. it's the 70s, man. It's the 70s, man. Yeah. Uh, there is, as you say, you know, a little bit of romance, but nothing crazy inappropriate or anything. I never thought he'd do it, but I think another director might have sort of lent into that wind a bit more. But it's he realises there's more of an element of, no, we're going to tantalise you with this because that is an emblem of the outside world, but we're going to pull away from it. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think it's also, he's actually not really in a position to fully go out and charm somebody. Like this is a kid who is absolutely messed up at that moment and he doesn't, I I don't think he has it in him to really kind of, I mean, there's clearly a connection there with this girl at the party, basically. There's clearly something that he feels, that she feels. They're able to talk comfortably. It's okay. But you feel like if he was actually left to go on a series of dates with her or whatever. <laughs> He'd break. He would break. He would break it up. He, would, he wouldn't He would be ready at that moment, at least in the film. So I, I thought, yeah, you're right. Just the tantalizing, just the glimpse of it is is kind of quite as much as he can handle, I think, at that moment. Yeah, I think that's the movie all over, really. There's just a little bit, 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 a little bit. I really want to talk about the ending because it is so... You're the leader here. Well, but yeah. it's so cathartic because they are just trapped in this snow globe. This, And I think they both want to play by the rules and win. Particularly Paul really wants to play by the rules and win. And he's done it his whole life. And honey, you ain't won. Yeah. You ain't won. And then you look at Mary Lamb's poor son. He played by the rules and did not win. And to me, it's a movie about rules and traditions and what they are, what they represent and why we feel obliged to obey some of them and not obey others. And and sort of Christmas naturally has this fellowship with, with tradition and so rules. So that's why this all feels so neat. Mm. What are we obliged to do and what is actually us listening to what we need to do and going and doing that. Not living in fear and living more in ourselves as if we had infinite money and all the time in the world, but yes. Well, let's let's take a couple of minutes and talk about the ending. So if you are a spoiler verse, if you haven't seen the film yet, we're, we're going to do that for like five, ten minutes, let's say. So okay. Because I think it is really important because I think it is, that's the closest the film gets to the big gesture is at the end of the movie. And, and essentially it's Paul giving himself up for Angus. And it's just, I think it's really important and it's really effective and it's really wonderful, to be honest, because he has come so far and Angus has come so far. They've earned it. And they've earned it. How it many feels... movies do you not feel like they've earned it? And, and also what it feels like is, and this is something that a couple of guests have talked about on this podcast in the past. Um, if you go back to the Your Christmas or Mine, I think, uh, uh, chat I did with the screenwriter last year and Tom Parry, you will you will hear a bit of discussion about this. But a lot of these Christmas romances come from a fundamental misunderstanding, which is that Christmas isn't terribly romantic. Generally speaking, you're with family members. So, you know, it's not the ideal time to be putting the moves on somebody. I completely agree. It is a time for couples. Sure. Established couples, Christmas, wonderful. Established couples, families, great. But this is the third and I think most important kind of Christmas movie. And this is lost souls. This is people who really need Christmas 
or they need something which happens to hopefully come at Christmas to, to reconnect them with the world, to, to, you know, set them back on their path, to do something, to find some measure of, you know, the peace and the joy and the, the charity and the happiness that we all talk about at Christmas. And we don't necessarily, you know, spend a lot of time worrying about between the present buying and the cooking. But this is about three incredibly lonely, isolated yeah, people yeah, finding yeah. something in each other. Not everything, not like a, a, a pat answer, you know, and they all move in together and become some kind of commune and form a cult. I don't know. But just finding some human connection that enables them to get out of a, of a bad situation, at least for a little while, at least for a moment. Breaking from the rules, breaking from the routine, being themselves. Exactly. And that is so beautiful and it's so important. And it's something that I don't think enough Christmas movies necessarily do. Um, so because people are lonely at Christmas, that is a thing that exists and it is something that we should maybe spend more of our time worrying about and trying to kind of combat. I completely agree. And I think this is a movie for the, you know, next door neighbour shoveling the snow in in Home Alone. It's yeah. like, what what's how let's talk about that more. And you get it at the end and the family comes along. But for a lot of people, we don't have that. And yeah, you see all the Christmas rom-coms where you're getting together with somebody anywhere near the 20th of December. Are you simply quite mad? I mean, who has time? You've got like so many social engagements at that time of year. Your lips are so chapped. I mean, if you met somebody new, you'd be like, this is great. I look forward to seeing you on January 6th. (laughs) I mean, I just, I'm not free between now and then. Sorry. I would love to see that holiday rom-com going. Look, actually, my diary is very busy. Um, why don't we wait until everyone's penniless and we're really grumpy in the second week of January? Now, question, what's your position on kissing a new person when you're doing dry January? Yes, <laughs> no? Just tick a box and let me know and we'll reconvene accordingly. But the, this this film has, it has lots of Boston moments and, and they're sort of the jolly bits, right? Can mm. we say the jolly bits of the ice skating or whatever? But with Angus's dad and realising where they're going, is a gut punch. It is grown-up adult problems and the results of going to that place, I don't want to use the 70s terminology, and then what Paul ends up having to do, I want to say this about his sacrifice, is that it is not so... I love it so much because it's a sacrifice that actively benefits himself, Paul, because he realises, I think this is what he has needed Mm. and you can't just continue. You can't keep staring at the same problem, trying to answer it the same way and expect a different, better life. You will just sort of sink into your chair forever and you have to make a change and do something different. And it's that perfect moment where he can do something good for this kid and he can do something even better for himself. Yeah, even if it's hard in the interim, it's even be if it's hard. Yeah, no question. Sometimes you just have to pull the plug and go. All right. The the other standout scene I want to mention is also in on that Boston trip, which is Mary visiting her sister. Yeah, her sister is pregnant with her first child. Oh, and Mary obviously has just lost hers. I can barely talk about it without <sighs> tearing up because it destroyed me watching yep. this film. Absolutely destroyed me. And I think it is, again, just so powerful. It's not overplayed. You don't need to belabor it. But my God, what, and again, what a moment of kind of sacrifice, but also opening yourself up to something new, to something that you need, to something, you know, not not better, obviously, but like better than than cutting off your sister because you can't deal with her happiness is to is to try and be part of that. 
it is damaged people finding ways to improve themselves that doesn't feel tacky or cheesy. Now, I've read some reviews that have said that it is sort of saccharine and cheesy, whatever, but I, maybe from a British-Irish perspective, don't read it that way. Maybe from a New Englander perspective, it doesn't get read that way, but maybe for others, it's like, oh, and everything's fine. I was like, no, I don't think so. Uh, That scene is electric and horrible and lovely, the film. There you go. The Cherry Jubilee. Oh. I've never more than sort of punch the air over some sort of dessert-based hurrah. It was it was fantastic. I was sort of fired up. This is a movie where I could be like despondent and depressed and then fired up and excited and then bittersweet and then gently merry. And it just has all these different feelings. Mm, I agree. I think uh, it's the second big dessert moment in a, in a film this year after... Well, actually, no, there's been two others... Genie has a big dessert moment at the oh, end. I have not seen Genie. Okay, I, I no will spoilers. not. I will not be admonished for it. And uh, your Christmas or mine too, of course, has chat about thirteen Christmas desserts, which I'm still trying to figure out which ones those are. Thirteen. Which ones, though? It's How like, many types of pie? It's like the seven fishes in bear. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's big, big year for desserts, and I'm all here for that. But I think, you know, in terms of saccharin or whatever else, I think you're right. It's the, it's the changing of tones and it's the, the fact that the moments that are dark are very dark. Yes. Earns a bit of happiness at the end. And you're right, it's not a totally happy ending, but it earns enough happiness. It earns enough possibility and opening to possibilities that it works, certainly for me. And of course, I've talked on this podcast a lot. I know you, I think, agree with me on this. It's a Wonderful Life. The reason you get away with that ultra happy ending is because you've had two hours of self-sacrifice. You've eaten your vegetables. You've eaten your vegetables. You've earned a dessert. You've earned a cherry's jubilee. You've earned some cognac. And I think this is very much that same thing. You you have gone through it with these characters. So to see a glimmer of hope at the end is not overly sentimental. It is necessary and good and right and proper. Do you remember the, the lines they share with each other at the end? It's, it's, it's sort of very perfectly done, and I, I'm not going to try to quote them because I can't remember them, but there are some very well-written lines there and they are delivered and, and the camera's held on just the right number of seconds and it just feels just so... Ugh. I'm not saying perfection like it is entirely perfect, but there's a sense that perfection was aimed for. And here's my general point, which we've said on this podcast before, that Christmas movies don't have to be good anymore. They don't. They've been watered down by Hallmark and they've been watered down to barely a brisk broth. It is nothing now because of Netflix. You can watch absolute dreck and be satisfied with it because we've become used to that flavour of the soup as he absolutely rinses this metaphor. You really, (laughs) really do live in a world these days where you don't have to make a good Christmas movie. And I think those that have had a chance to have in cinema good Christmas movies have sort of stumbled like Last Christmas, right? Let's be honest. Yeah, that's fair. You need to write a script that is absolutely sensational and somehow have some new ideas in it, almost impossible, and not cost too much to be worthy to be in cinemas and demand $10, $15 of our time, of our money and our time. Booking kids, babysitting, that sort of thing. So in a streaming world where Christmas movies can't be good, the last really, really good one for me is Klaus. We've talked about it ad infinitum. And now we have this. Yeah. That seems to be it. <laughs> Arthur Christmas, was it that in 2011? I, El- enjoy, I enjoyed Violent Night quite a lot in a, on a very different Right, that's cool. Style, you know. I'm very glad you brought it up. 
Elf was in 2003. Yeah. Love Actually was in 2003. As was Bad Santa. As was Tokyo Godfathers. Next, right here. next time you are asked the question, what's your favourite Christmas movie? Or why don't we get any new good Christmas movies? This is sort of it. Hold on to this. Yeah. Really cuddle and love and, and fall in love with it every year. This movie is special. And it is a Christmas film because no one makes them anymore. Because why would you make one? There, it's such a crowded market. And why would you make one for a theatrical release? It's a hiding to nothing. That's what it feels like to me. Well, I hope this one makes all the money in the world, frankly. And It's done okay in the US. I know, but maybe here it will suddenly... It'll pop off. Or maybe pop. all these Oscars it'll hopefully get yeah. will give it that second wind. Maybe it'll be the one that has a real uh, second coming next December. Maybe. Uh, look, I mean, I know it's going on my Christmas rotation. It, it, oh, you yeah. said it'll be on yours. It goes without saying. I think it might start being one of those ones that you play to sort of a new partner. You start mm. going, um, can I just check whether you... Uh, is this... Do you like this? Yeah, I'm not sure I already got it. Oh, that's a shame. That's a shame. Anyway, at least I can dump you before Christmas. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> leaving you free to pick somebody up <laughs> after the holidays are over. No, leaving you two days' time. <laughs> it's the 18th. Damn, Damn it. Damn it. I'm booked up. I, I mean, the, do it. the real truth is if you don't... If you watch Klaus and you don't like that, that's the real... Oh, you're made of ice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I think with this one, there is, I'll give people a little bit more wiggle room. It is, it is still an Alexander Payne movie. It really is. It is. It is. I think that's probably the note on which to end. Um, Ali, obviously people can hear you regularly on Radio 1 and they should also, I, I would say, follow you on social media as well because you put up clips of your uh, fantastic interviews with Hollywood's Great and Good. My chits and my chats. Indeed. Both. Yeah, both of them. I have two flavours. Uh, no, that's very kind of you. Yes, I do have a podcast, Ready One Screen Time, where I sort of have lengthier versions of my YouTube or iPlayer shows that you might have seen, where I interview the likes of Timothy Chalamet or, or what have you. But um, yeah, no, I'm around, I'm about presenting and hosting and wearing a suit like I do. And um, yeah, look, it's always a pleasure to be on this podcast because Christmas is great and movies are great and so are you. So Aww. here's to you. Happy January. Happy January. Happy January. See y'all in 11 months, I guess. This is weird. This is weird. And a reminder that it's 2024. Disgusting. Outrageous. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.